Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, July the 9th, 2022. It is currently 3.02 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, where I'm about to make a promise to you. I'm going to make a promise, and hopefully I will not break it. I'm going to be very tempted to break it, but I'm going to try to deny myself, die to myself, and not follow myself. But by denying myself, dying to self, and not following myself, I am creating myself a lot of difficulty, but it's going to require that. Yesterday, well, welcome obviously, to the podcast. Welcome to our series on Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, We we weren't really prepared. There was was nothing in our minds going, you know what, let's start a series on Philippians 3, 10, because the the thing I need right now is more series to work on. No, we just kind of stumbled into this, but here's where we are. And what we're doing on our work of Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, is at least initially, we're reviewing sermons on Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, specifically a sermon series that someone said, here's a, a sermon series on Philippians 3, 10, use that. So I just picked the first thing sent to me, and that's what we're using. But you know, if you if you know anything about our sermon reviews, first, I don't listen to them in advance because I don't like it to feel like it's rehearsed or planned. Um but, uh, so I, because I don't listen to them first, I never know what's going to happen, but you also know that it takes a long time to review a sermon because we don't just like listen to it. We're critiquing, we're analyzing it. And one of the reasons we do that is we don't want anyone to make any accusation of copyright infringement because fair use gives me the right to, uh, to critique, to analyze, to review, as long as it's transformative. If I take the content and it transforms into something other than what the original content was, then okay. So, um, so there's some things we try to do. Not that you know, I, you know, uh, I don't think most sermons have a, a copyright, but just in case they do, we we try to be as careful as we can. Um, but it takes a long time. So yesterday, when we kind of began this series. The sermon, the the broadcast episode almost went two hours long. So I'm going to promise you today that I'm not going to allow that to happen. But the problem is I know I'm not going to be able to finish reviewing this entire sermon and this episode. So it means it's going to take two or three episodes to finish this sermon review, two or three sermons, two or three episodes to review the next sermon, two or three episodes to review the last sermon. So that means this is going to turn into a very long series. I, I wanted to avoid that. But you know what? What I have to focus on is what I think is best and what will be most beneficial to you. And most people can't listen to a super, I mean, all, mine are already super long broadcast uh, podcast episodes, but I don't want to make them I- any longer. So I'm going to do my very best. But are you ready? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Let me read it. Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, Paul says, of himself, that I may know him. The him there refers to Christ. You can go back to verse 9 and verse 8, and you will see that. That I may know him. That Paul, his his desire is that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. 
Now, this verse, even though it may seem to be, I don't know, to me, there's nothing simple about the verse. In other words, the verse has never appeared to me to be extremely simple. Many people treat it like, oh, this is an easy verse, but I think there are so many issues with it, and we've been talking about them now for a while. Um, And so we spent, what, almost two hours talking about them. Let me just try to briefly go through some concepts here, all right? First, when Paul says, that I may know him, most would argue that Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, Paul would be a person who probably knows Christ better than most people on the earth at that time, right? That he is... Christ has communicated directly with him. Christ taught him, you know, while he was in the desert. Uh, he's he's being used to write scripture. I mean, so you he he's been given a vision of heaven. All of the different things that had happened to Paul, you would think he he knows. And many believe Paul's getting close to the end of his life and writing uh, to the to the Church of Philippi. So he he would know Christ, but but he's longing to know him. So what? What, what, what's, I want to know him. So are we just saying, well, Paul just wanted to know him and that was great. And so now you need, we need to know Christ. And how do we know him? We study more. I am. Paul seems to be longing for some kind of knowledge that goes beyond all the knowledge he had already obtained and already encountered. He wants to know something specifically. Now, how to read the, the next part is where sometimes the debate begins because some read this like a list. Number one, that I may know him. Number two, the power of his resurrection. Number three, the fellowship of his suffering. And number four, be made conformable unto his death. Like he's praying for four separate things. All right, so if it's four separate things, then number one, he wants to know. Number two, he wants to experience or or understand the power. He says, well, I guess you would have to be no, right? Because it says, and that I may know the power of his resurrection, but that knowledge there can be an experiential knowledge. So, all right, he wants to know Christ. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings, and he wants to be made conformable unto his death. But what if this knowledge of knowing him, it, so some see it separate. I, let me just, I, before I get ahead of myself. So I want to know him, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to fellowship of his sufferings. Almost like they're three separate things, not necessarily interlinked. Or maybe they're interlinked, but we don't really emphasize that. So we, we, do, we do one sermon, and this is how many people approach it. What does it mean to know Christ? And that's what we reviewed yesterday. Basically, a sermon doing a topical message on how to know Christ really didn't help any. And it definitely did not help us understand Philippians 3.10. So, so... So some people just leave that by itself. Uh, then they will go to the next one. All right, the know the power of his resurrection. Okay, what does it mean to know the power of his resurrection? And what does it mean to know the fellowship of his suffering? And then what they will do is, so to know him is this. To know the power of the resurrection means this. And know the fellowship of his suffering means this. And they will connect this knowledge as an experiential knowledge. These are separate things of things that we can experience and encounter in this life in some kind of practical way, and they tell you what you need to do to experience that and what it looks like, what it feels like, and it becomes very subjective and somewhat, I think, in many cases, questionable because I think a lot of people say, this is what it looks like, but then you don't really see that evident in people people's lives. So there's a lot of issues with, are these connected? Do we separate them? We've talked about all of this. There's a couple of, uh, another approach that says, you know what, what Paul is saying here is that he wants to know Christ in a way that beyond anything, 
all right? And then we go ahead and separate the power of his resurrection, all right? That refers to uh, justification and regeneration. That's how we know that power. But then why would Paul be wanting to know that power? Because already he already believes. So making this justification and regeneration, that's a problem. Fellowship of his suffering, we can say, okay, that means taking up your cross, dying to yourself and fighting sin. Okay, so you're saying Paul hasn't known that up to this point? Is that the end of his life? I think he already knows that. So how how does that apply to Paul in a practical way? And to be conformable unto his death, hasn't Paul already been suffering? He's in prison when he's writing the letter of Philippi. He's He's been persecuted and stoned and all whipped and shipwrecked and starved and all the things that's happened to him. So that still seems somewhat confusing even. So if you make it about Paul, how does that even fit? There's just so many issues with it falling apart. Again, I can't go through everything in, in our review. So we, so someone who was listening put forth an idea. I've taken that idea, tried to flesh it out, and our, this is our hypothesis. This is our theory. This is our thesis. And we're, we're listening to sermons and reviewing them to test our hypothesis. We, we put it something like this. Paul wants to know but he wants to know in a way that he has never known before. He is longing for a knowledge that he has yet to experience. And he wants to know Christ. And knowing Christ is connected with the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and being made conformable unto his death. And so the argument is that the only way to know these things, truly know them, is Paul is looking for the day of his death and his resurrection. Because once we die, listen, we will know him as we are known. We will be like him, right? So there's the ultimate knowledge because now to, to, to be absent from the body's present with the Lord, you will see him as he truly is. You will truly know him. You are never going to truly know him until then. The power of his resurrection can never be truly known until, well, you have been resurrected, right? You've died and you're resurrected. You, you have life. And the fellowship of his suffering according to John Gill, puts forth the concept that maybe this fellowship of the suffering is not us suffering, but that we are we have fellowship in his suffering because we receive the benefits of that suffering. And we can never truly know that until, well, we're standing in the presence of God. And guess what? No more sinful nature. There's no more pain. There's no more death because in Christ, Christ suffered to defeat death. Christ suffered to destroy sin. We, we don't really have the fellowship with that, that until we are in his presence. So the argument that we are making is that maybe the only way to understand this is Paul is wanting a knowledge that he cannot experience until basically his death and entering into the presence of God until his resurrection. That's the argument we have made. We've tried to consider every other position, but it falls apart somewhere, somehow, right? It's just like, wait, wait, what does that look like? But we are testing our theory by listening to other people present different views. And if those other views make more sense, then we will reject our view and go back to another one. So far, it's not gone very well, but here we are today to do that just again, uh, to do that again. So what we're doing is we're listening to a four-part four series. We've listened to part one, and they focused on knowing him. Remember, they did not actually preach the text. 
They just turned it into a topical message about knowing Christ, and they didn't even really tell us how we do that, I guess, other than I guess we just need to study more. So I guess Paul needed to study more. The whole thing made no sense to the actual text. And today we're going to move on to the second part of that sermon series, and we're going to look at the power of his resurrection. How are they going to explain what that means and how Paul needed to learn to know it? How did Paul need to learn to know that? And are they going to forget about Paul really quick in the sermon and make it about us? Well, let's find out. Are you ready? 12 minutes just to review. Okay, here we go. I I feel like I need to just go through all of those options again, but that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. I kind of just like throwing out bits and pieces there and just so that you see that it's not as easy as everyone thinks. Philippians 3.10 is not as easy as everyone thinks that it is. But here we go. Here's part two of this sermon series and our part two of the review begins right now. The book of Philippians, the third chapter, and we'll read the first 11 verses. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, concluding at verse number 11. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse number 1. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in in the flesh, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, that he hath were off, he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. If I have to, I have to interrupt here. Now, I'm basing this off yesterday's sermon review, so I could be proven wrong in this particular sermon. But we saw yesterday, and I think this is just an, a, point, a, a very important point to remember, because one of our emphasis yesterday was just how you can be so deceived by a sermon in the sense that the sermon can literally get in way, get in the way of the text, or the sermon can really replace the text. Like, like here's the text, and you hear a sermon, and you think somehow you got the text, but really you got a 
you got an alternative to the text. You got something that replaced the text. You got you got a a replacement. You got a substitute. The sermon substitutes the text. So you get the sermon, you walk away thinking you studied the text, but the sermon kept you away from the text. The the sermon is like, "Hey, no, look at me. Look at me." And you're like, "Okay, yeah, I'll look at that." And then you walk away going, "Wow, I got the text. And no, no, no. The text was kept behind the sermon. The the sermon was keeping you from it. And I want you to just realize how deceptive this can be. Just because someone reads the whole chapter, just because someone reads all the verses, just because someone takes some time maybe to give some historical context or some textual context, that doesn't mean when the sermon was over, you actually learned anything about the actual text. All of that I call is window dressing. All of that is wrapping paper, right? It's all just, it looks nice. It sounds good. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. What I'm saying is when it's all said and done, did we get anything from Philippians 3.10? Yesterday in the sermon we reviewed, we didn't get anything from Philippians 3.10. Philippians 3.10 was an excuse to do a topical method, a topical, not topical method, but a topical study on basically what it means to know God Paul was forgotten, it became about us, and then we didn't even really get any actual steps on how to know God other than I guess we need to study more. I mean, it was really like, it was it was crazy, but it sounded, not that anything was said, um, this is very important, not that anything said was untrue, unbiblical, or wrong from a theological standpoint. It was all sound, biblical, and theological. The only problem is, had nothing to do with Philippians 3.10. So all of this right now sounds so good. He's reading the whole ta- whole chapter. Or that's that isn't that awesome? He 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 cares about context. Yeah, but what is he going to do? Are we gonna actually get a study of the verse? Now, today we may. Yesterday we didn't, but I just want you to learn to see past all of the window dressing and all of the wrapping paper. When it's all said and done, what did I get? Did I really study the text today? Or did I get a sermon? We can never allow a sermon to become a substitute for the text. Everybody should go, ooh, okay, all right, I'm joking. All right, here here we go. Let's see what he's going to do. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Ending at verse 11, we know God will bless the reading of his precious and inspired truth to all of our hearts. I want to speak tonight upon the second phrase that is found in verse number 10, the power of his resurrection. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We're coming tonight to look again at this great and wonderful verse of scripture that expresses the great desire or holy ambition of the apostle Paul. Paul's great desire was, above and beyond every other thing, that I may know him. That is to say, that I might become more and more acquainted, that my relationship with Christ and my knowledge of him might be deepened, that I may know him. And not only that, but also the power of his resurrection and also the fellowship of his sufferings and also that I might be made conformable unto his death. As we consider these words before us tonight, it would remind us, I believe, as as God has reminded me in the study, that the potential of the Christian life is staggering. We can never really limit God as to what God can do in the life of an individual. 
And a verse like this tonight should thrill and stir our hearts that there's always so, so much more to experience and to discover in the Christian life. Okay, now, just a couple of things. Remember, this: the pastor has already stated, this same pastor in the previous sermon, that when it, Paul wanted to know more, he already said that Paul already knew more than anyone. So he never really explained, okay, so, well, so what more did Paul need to know? Like, like it, he never really explained how just from an earthly perspective, Paul was supposed to gain more knowledge. We would, if we could find the dating, uh, we, we could do this just for your own personal edification. Look at the dating for the writing of Philippians. And then to say, look, when, when Paul wrote about his experience being caught up into the third heaven, and when you read some of the things in Acts of being stoned and all the things that, that Paul, his, his trip on the road to Damascus where Christ is like, you know, why do you persecute me? All the things that his three years being taught by Christ in the desert. When you look at all the things that, are all the things that Paul had experienced with Christ, if I said if I said that the wrong way, I apologize. If you look at all the things Paul experienced with Christ in his relationship with Christ up to when he writes Philippians, if you kind of if you could try to find a date for Paul's conversion to the dating of Paul's writing to the Philippians, see how many years that is. We we preach this and like, well, Paul just wants to know more. What how could he learn more? Like what what how many books had he already written? Like, it just seems so, no, Paul's longing for some kind of knowledge that seems to go beyond anything he could experience on earth. It was something that has to be connected with the resurrection. And that's why I'm becoming more and more convinced that the, our theory, that we're onto something with our theory and with our thesis, because I think if we just figure out the dating, when was Paul converted? The conversion of, of Paul, basic, you know, well, somewhere, somewhere, I mean, you know, if, if let's say Jesus is crucified in 33 AD, let's say we go with that that dating. Well, Paul's conversion has to be somewhere close to 33 AD, right? 34, 35. Can't be that long, right? Right. So then, when does Paul write to the letter to uh, to the Philippines uh, or to the Philippines to the Philippians? When does he write to the Church of Philippi? Now, if we figure out that date. Well, then you can think of all, try to figure out all the things Paul had experienced, all the things that Paul had seen leading up to him writing this. And then here he's saying, I still want to know. It's got to be a knowledge that goes beyond. I I think it's a knowledge. It's it's an experience. It's a knowledge that can only be met in something other than something that happens on this earth. But you can already see where this preacher is going to go. Hey, he forgets about Paul for a second. We, we can't even imagine what we can experience. This passage is going to be what you can experience, what I can experience, what we can discover. So this is about not something that's going to happen after we're in the presence of God, but he's going to make this something that we can experience right now on this Saturday, July the 9th, 2022, or whenever you hear this, all right? So we may want to look up the dating of all that. Paul's conversion Paul writing to uh, the church of Philippi. I don't know why I said the Philippines, but you get it. All right. Everybody, are we good with that? Okay. We may look that up. We may have to look that up before this is over. So if you want to look that up, start and you can let me know what you discover. Right. But here we go. We got to listen. So it's hard. Like a part of me wants to just stop and like, let's just establish those dates. But that'll, that would take a little bit of time. I want to try to get this review. But at some point, we're going to return to that because I think that could be an essential 
part of the puzzle and trying to see which way to interpret this passage. All right, here we go. Sometimes whenever a person gets converted, I often think it's like stepping off a vessel that was sinking and being brought to shore, being brought to a, a new land, a new country. And yet so often we spend most of our times just sitting on the beach, as it were, sitting on the shore, where there's a whole continent of truth and experience that lies waiting to be explored and discovered. Any person in history who has lived a virtuous and a victorious and a valuable Christian life has done so because they have known Christ in a very real and personal manner. Sinclair B. Ferguson said, Knowing God is your single greatest privilege as a Christian. It's not merely having your sins forgiven. It's not merely that we have one day a home in heaven. But the single greatest privilege of the Christian is that they have been brought to know God their Creator. Jesus Christ prayed in John 17, 3 and said, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And last Tuesday night, we considered the first part. All right. It appears, at least just uh, when I look briefly, that, um, well, we have, we have some, com- some conflicting dates here. We have, it looks like somewhere between 60 and 62 AD um, is when Philippians was written. I have 61, 62, 62. Uh, see, what else do I have here? 62. Um, let's see here. 60, 62. 60, 62. I do have some saying maybe uh, between 57 and 59. So it looks like between 57 and 62, 57 to 62. Well, if his conversion takes place somewhere between 33, 34 AD, then that's a, a number of years of things he has experienced. And then you try to think of everything he's experienced. How, how, what other books has he written at this time? Well, he spent three years being taught by Christ in, in the wilderness, in the, in the desert. So that, okay... You you, t- you start taking how much time he spent being taught by Christ and and revelation he was re- receiving things uh, it's like you uh, and the things that happened to him persecution the the miracles he had witnessed and seen and, and it just seems weird that we get to to this point in Philippians and go oh he, he he's trying to know something okay well then what, what like what is he trying to know that he hasn't experienced or seen. It's got to be something that can only be understood in connection with the resurrection in him in heaven. That, that I, I'm going to continue to push that, that idea, but we'll see where this is. I, I know where this is going to go. It's going to go. It's going gonna, it's gonna to forget Paul really quick. It's going to become about you and me. And it's about us experiencing the power of the resurrection Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Maybe, maybe he's going. Maybe he will just reduce it to regeneration and justification. But then that's going to be confusing because Paul is already regenerated. He's already justified. So it can't be that. So what is Paul wanting to know? Let, let's see here. Part of this verse, Paul's holy ambition that I may know him. And that verse or that little phrase spoke to us of majesty that I may know him, 
Christ, full of majesty. It also speaks of mercy. Paul, a sinner, brought to know Jesus Christ. It speaks of mercy. And it also speaks of mystery. That I can possibly come to know him. It's one of the greatest mysteries of them all. It also speaks of mentality. That I may know him. That I might engage my mind and, and set my heart to study the truth of the gospel and the doctrines of Christ. It also speaks of modesty. The Apostle Paul was the greatest Christian we believe that ever lived. And yet Paul was modest enough at the end of his life to say that I want to know him even more. I don't know him as well as I could or as well as I should. It speaks of modesty. It also speaks of maturity. He's speaking here about, about coming to a place of a, having a full Lord faith and a mature faith. He acknowledges in verse number 12, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I might apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He's following on. He wants to come to a place of maturity. And it also speaks to us tonight of mastery. The calling of God in Paul's life was to know Christ. And he wants to master this above and beyond every other thing. And every Christian ought to seek to master this wonderful pursuit of knowing Christ. And, tonight and all of these points that he's reviewing, just remember, none of them have anything to do with Philippians 3.10. They have zero to do with Philippians 3.10. All of that that he's reviewing has nothing to do with Philippians 3.10. And I'm getting a little worried here, right? Because... We're seven minutes into the sermon. There's only 32 minutes left. You know the last minute to two minutes is just the very brief conclusion and probably a prayer. So that means basically we're going to get 30 minutes. Maybe, if that. We're going to get 30 minutes and trying to figure out the, uh, what it means for Paul to know the power of his resurrection so already it just, it, this is one that it feels like he's going to say some words, but I don't know if it's, is he going to connect it to anything in actual Philippians 3.10? Are we going to really understand? I think we're going to get another sermon that's going to be a substitute for the text because how can you deal with that in 30 minutes? How is that even humanly possible? I, I have no idea. I think in 30 minutes, you still wouldn't even figure out exactly what in the world is going on here. Maybe he's got it all figured out and therefore it's so simple that five minutes or 10 minutes into his explanation, we're going to be like, well, we feel stupid. That's the right way to understand it. I'm open to that, but I'm just really worried that he's going to be able to pull this off in basically 30 minutes. He hasn't even gotten started yet on the phrase. We'll see when, uh, how much time is left when he starts uh, on this. Tonight we're coming to look at the second part of the verse. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He says, I want to know Christ personally, but I also want to know something of the power of his resurrection in my life. Okay, so here we go. So what Paul is saying, I'll paraphrase, Paul is like, I want to know him, but I want to know the power of his resurrection in my life. Again, this is almost 60 AD. Paul's conversion has to be somewhere around 33, 34 AD. You're saying between Paul's conversion and 60-something AD, Paul hasn't experienced the power of the resurrection of Christ in a meaningful way? H had Paul raised anyone before this point? 
Has he? Has he? I mean, I like, I, I, you see, it, this is just, we have to at least try to understand. Paul's like, hey guys, look, I, I still need to know the power of his resurrection. Well, I think then the only thing that would be left for Paul to know the power of the resurrection would be to actually experience the resurrection, right? To actually experience being taken into heaven and then, you know, and, and what we can wait for, is he talking about the ultimate resurrection when his body will come from the ground and be glorified? But he's still already in the presence of God now. So he, is that what he was longing for? The ultimate understanding and the ultimate experience of it? Or was he just looking for something else on earth? Something else that he had not yet experienced yet, or he didn't know it yet. That's the question every good Bible student has to be at. Well, wait, what did Paul not know at this point? Right? Because look, if Paul reaches that point and still feels like he doesn't know the power of the resurrection, well, then we're never going to know it because none of us is ever going to experience the things Paul experienced unless we're going to just start pretending and making things up because those things that happened during the apostolic era is not happening now. So see, that that just becomes majorly problematic. There's, we, we would be, this would be, make us hopeless. All right, well, if Paul still didn't know it after all the things he experienced, I give up. I can read my Bible 300 times a day. I, I'm never going to be being given direct revelation, being used to write scripture, taken up to the third heaven, performing miracles. No, I'm never going to experience all of that. So therefore, I could never know it. If Paul didn't know it at the end of his life, then I'm never going to know it. Or we can both say we want to know it, and we both know the only way we're going to know it is when we truly experience when I'm no longer here in this body, but I'm present with the Lord, and therefore I'm in eternal life, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, everything. Then I truly know the power of the resurrection. Anything, I mean, if Paul didn't know it, give up. That's, that would be the message of this. If I was preaching this sermon this way, this would be my message. Hey, guys, I want you to know something. How do you think you're doing in your spiritual life? Well, when Paul got to around 62, 63 AD, getting to the end of his life, he realized, you know what? I still don't know him. And I still don't know the power of his resurrection. Well, then guess what? You're not going to know it either, right? I mean, just give up. Just give up. There's no point. But we always preach this. Well, you need to read more. You need to study more. You need to do this more. Well, clearly that's not going to accomplish this. This seems to be pointing to after my salvation, I ultimately long. My ultimate goal after I am saved is that I will truly experience the fulfillment, the true, it, look, what I taste, the part I taste now of salvation in a sense is somewhat incomplete, right? I still have a sinful nature. I'm still in the flesh. There's still pain. There's still suffering. There's still physical death that I will encounter unless Christ comes back. I won't truly know salvation. That's, uh, that's, uh, I, I would truly not know salvation until I'm in the presence of God. No more pain, no more sickness, no more tears, no more death. That, okay, good. Someone just said, that's exactly how I would feel. Defeated me too. Because this is preached like, hey, you need to read more. You need to study more. But I would raise my hand. Well, why would I read or study more? All of my reading and study cannot give me the experience Paul had. And if Paul still hadn't gotten it, I'll never get it. See, they don't point me to the ultimate fulfillment of this, which has to be our resurrection, us in the presence of God. Then we are known as, uh, 
we, we will know him as he has known us. We will be like him. Be, we will, I, I mean, every, all of the benefits, we will truly understand it. Nothing else makes any sense. All right, I'm sorry I'm taking too long on this, but I'm getting more and more perplexed here. But all right, here we go. Let, let's see where he's going to go. I got to give him the opportunity. I keep cutting him off. I know, but all right, here we go. The second part of the verse takes us deeper still. And it indicates to us tonight that we have a living, a reigning, a glorified, and a victorious Savior at the right hand of the majesty on high tonight. And that ought surely to stir up and thrill our hearts. Tonight we're considering this little phrase, the power of his resurrection. And we couldn't possibly exhaust these few words tonight in the time that's left to us. But as we think... Okay, this is this is preacher humor here, right? This is this is preacher humor. We could not possibly exhaust everything here, but I'm going to do so in less than 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. That 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 to me is code for I don't really know what to do with this. That's what this is. When you say we could not possibly cover everything and we're going to be done in 20 minutes. That's code for me that you don't know what to do with. It's better just to say, guys, I don't know what to do with this. We're going to be done quick than to say, look, guys, there's so much. Now, sometimes you have to say, look, guys, there's too much here and I can't get to it. So tonight I'm only going to focus on this. But when you say there's just so much to cover in this phrase, we can't get to it all. And then you're going to be done in less than 30 minutes. I mean, come on. How much is there if you're going to be done? In le- if there's that much, then then you would have came back the previous week and continued, right? Or you would have went longer than 30 minutes. I mean, like, that seems, oh, that, that, that drives me. That's usually code like, hey, guys, I want you to know there is so much here, so much. But we can't get to it. Not, there's so much here, but I don't have a clue. It's okay to admit that. Like, I don't know what to do with this. I, 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 there's been plenty of times in my preaching, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I, I'm just, I don't have a clue. I don't know what to do. Now, usually I'll spend an hour trying to just you know, ramble for an hour trying to figure it out. So maybe it's better to take this approach. It's just like, come on, don't tell me how much is there. And then you're not even going to attempt to even try to get to it. I mean, that just seems there's a disconnect there. That's all I'm saying. About the power of his resurrection. And just really, very simply, the resurrection generally, there's a few simple things that I want to say about the power of Christ's resurrection in this meeting this evening. The first thing is this, the exigency of his resurrection. That's probably a word that you don't understand. I didn't understand it either, but I wanted to get another word beginning with the letter E, because all of the other points begin with the letter E, and it just... I think sometimes the worst thing to ever happen to the church were preaching classes. I really do. I mean, man, I, I've told you my first experience in my first school, right? My first experience, first school I ever went to. I went to plenty of schools. Preaching class. How to preach a sermon. Preached a sermon. Okay? Waiting for the feedback. Waiting for the critique, right? Did I handle the text right? Did I exegete this right? And you know what the, you know what the critique was? You need a little bit more bass in your voice. What? That's the critique? 
The critique is on the, I don't have enough bass, so I need to lower it an octave. I've got to be up there, not speaking the way I would normally speak, but try to lower my voice because I don't know. I don't know. Do I need to sound like Barry White? Like what? I, what? What? What is that? What is that? But this nonsense, you got to start it. Like I, I look, I don't really, I didn't really know the word, but I had to find a word that starts with an E. N- n- no, don't. No, that's why do we do that? I don't know. I don't know why we do that. I know it's supposed to be so people can memorize it and that people can remember it. But my, my fear is we're getting ready to get the same thing here. He's not going to connect this in any way to what's actually going on. What he's going to do is just really going to, I think he's going to say the power of his resurrection. And then this is going to be ripped from the text. And this is what it's going to be. A topical message on the resurrection. That, that's what it's going to be. It's not going to have, we're still not going to know anything about Philippians 3.10. We're going to know nothing. We're going to know something about the resurrection. No, this is Paul wanting to know the power of the resurrection. He wants to know it. it. This is not, Paul's like, hey, guys, you need to study. Now, I, okay, all right, let's just see. Let's just see what where this goes. All right, let's just see where this goes. This means the necessity of his resurrection. The necessity or the exigency or the vitality of his resurrection. Beloved, tonight the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is one of the most vital doctrines in all the Word of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of all Christian theology. Whenever we read in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, Paul is speaking in this great chapter about the resurrection of Christ. Uh, which ultimately leads to your own resurrection one day from the grave itself. But he summarizes the gospel in a wonderful and simple way in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15 and says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Now, if I was in a a hermeneutical class or if I was in a preaching class, I'd stop everyone and go, what's happening here? This is supposed to be an exegesis of Philippians 3.10, right? It's supposed to be exegeting the text. He's taken a phrase, ripped it out of the text. Now he's just doing a topical study on that phrase. And guess where we are? Are we in Philippians 3.10? No. Once again, we're, he, we're going to spend more time outside of Philippians 3, supposedly in our study of Philippians 3. So this is going to be another example where the sermon substitutes the text. Yeah, the power of resurrection, the the power of resurrection, the first thing we need to know is that the resurrection of Christ was necessary. It was vital. It was important. Okay, that's great. So, so Paul, what Paul needed to know was that the, the, so, so I'm trying to understand this. So the first point is we need to know that the resurrection of Christ was necessary. Well, he's quoting Paul, Right? So Paul, so does Paul need to know that the resurrection of Christ was necessary? He's quoting 1 Corinthians, right? Let me, let, let's, let's, let's do something really quick. I could be wrong. Let's look here. When, just going to Google, when was 1 Corinthians written? 1 Corinthians was written around 53 to 54. So it was written before the letter to the, to the church of Philippi. 
Paul's the one who wrote a letter saying the resurrection of Christ is absolutely essential. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. Christianity is in vain. So then why could, would Paul be like, I need to know the power of his resurrection. Okay, and Paul, the first thing you need to know is that the resurrection of Christ was essential. That makes sense. That literally makes no sense to what we're, that literally makes absolutely no sense. See, because he's like, hey, how do we know the power of the resurrection? Well, the first thing we need to know is that the resurrection of Christ was essential. Well, the person saying he needs to know it already knows it's essential because he's the one that was given revelation by God that it was essential and then wrote it in an inspired document called the letter to 1 Corinthians. <laughs> Doesn't even make any sense. Oh, man. Oh, man. Because see, this is what happens when you, when you, you need a sermon more than you want to study the text. <sighs> okay, we're going to continue. I'm almost ready just to give up on this. I'm, 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 I'm ready almost just to give up on that. I really am. Because I, I don't think, maybe he'll get into exactly how this fits to Paul. Because, because this is Paul saying he wants to know this. And then he comes along and says, well, the way we know it is the first thing we got to do. We got to know that the resurrection of Christ was essential. Paul already knows that. So that has nothing to do with Philippians 3.10. Not a thing. It's, it's not even related to the text. Oh, there's nothing. It, again, is what he's saying is true? Absolutely. Is what he's saying is true theologically? Is what he's saying true doctrinally? Is that it's a good point to be made? Is that great? Does it help you learn Philippians 3.10? No. Here's a church. Here's a group of believers, their brethren. And Paul comes to them again. And he says, now I'm declaring unto you again the gospel. Now, some brethren and some of God's people believe that the gospel is something that's just for the unconverted. And some people despise the gospel being preached in God's house, Lord's Day morning or Lord's Day evening. And they say, well, that's for the unconverted. And it is. But it's also for the saint as well. Because Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by also which ye are saved, if you keep in memory that which I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. And then here's the gospel in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which... He's doing a better job of exegeting 1 Corinthians. Right? He, he seems to be taking 1 Corinthians apart more than Philippians, even though he started the sermon with reading Philippians, but now we're exegeting 1 Corinthians, but he's not exegeting 1 Corinthians in order to help us understand Philippians 3, because he's left Philippians 3 to do a topical study on what we, what we need to know about the resurrection of Christ. But this Philippians 3 is not what I need to know, it's what Paul wanted to know, but Paul would have already known this, since we're reading the words of Paul expressing what you're telling us that I need to know. I, I don't understand. I don't understand. I'm not trying to, listen, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm not. I know, I know some of you are thinking I'm being mean. I, I'm, I apologize. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just frustrated that all we want to do is understand Philippians 3.10. 
right? It's all we want to do. That's all we want to do. And anyone who goes to a church and the pastor's like, we're going to be studying Philippians 3.10. All you should want is to understand Philippians 3.10, right? That's all you should want. That's all we want is to understand it. The only, we didn't pick these sermons because we knew they were bad. We picked them randomly, right? We're not trying to attack the sermon. What we're trying to demonstrate is this is a good example where a sermon gets in the way of the text. What we really were coming to is like, no, give us what it means because we've got our, we've got our hermeneutical theory. We've got our thesis here and we want it challenged. So here, challenge it. So far, nobody's come even where near, near it. They don't even come close to it at this point. So, but that's okay. Well, at some point, he's got to go back to Philippians 3.10. At some point, he's got to explain what Paul needed to know, because clearly what he's telling me now, Paul didn't need to know because he's quoting Paul about what we need to know. But Philippians 3.10 is not necessarily about what I need to know. It's first about why did Paul need to know it and how is he going to come to know it? You can't quote the... <laughs> so confused. All right, here we go. I also received how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The death of Christ, integral part of the gospel. And not only that, but he says, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now just keep your thumb in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at it a little bit more as the meeting goes on. But if you look on, it says in verse number 14, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Verse 17, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins. And it's like the Apostle Paul takes all of the truth that he's ever expounded. Talks about redemption in the book of Romans, justification by faith. He talks about the inspiration of Scripture. Talks about the, the blood of Christ. Talks about the burial of the Lord. He talks about conversion and all of these great doctrines. And then he turns them all in their head and balances them all upon one point. The resurrection of Christ. And he says, if Christ is not risen... We might as well forget about the whole thing. And I believe in doing that, he's indicating that this is one of the most vital doctrines in all the Word of God. And as we think about the resurrection of Christ, why is it so vital? Why is it such an important doctrine? Well, first of all, Christ had to rise again from the grave to fulfill the Scriptures. He had to rise again from the grave to fulfill the Scriptures. Because in the Old Testament, in the Messianic Psalms, for example, Psalm 16.10, the Lord said through the, the psalmist, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And that verse is quoted in the New Testament in reference to the resurrection of Christ. We have got men like Job who said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he shall stand on the earth in the last day. And whenever the Apostle Paul was preaching in Acts chapter 26, this great chapter before King Agrippa, he refers to the Old Testament and he says in Acts 26, 22 and 23, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets 
and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. So the Apostle Paul's whole understanding of Christ and the Messiah after his conversion was that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would physically rise again from the grave. And the Savior himself testified to that whenever he was walking with the two on the road to a mess, and they were discouraged. And they realized that the one that they had trusted in had died. And there was rumors that his body had been taken. And they couldn't understand it all. And then the Lord Jesus Christ says, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to rise again the third day? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he spoke unto them the things concerning himself. You see, the Old Testament told us that Christ would rise again. And then in the New Testament, the Savior testified to it himself. He said to the Pharisees, destroy this temple. I'll build it again in three days. And you remember how it says, but this spake he concerning his body. And he was speaking about the bodily resurrection from the grave. So if Christ hadn't risen from the grave, he would have been a false prophet. So he had to rise again to fulfill the scripture. Secondly, he had to rise again from the grave to free the sinner. He had to rise. We're not, gonna, we're not getting anything about how to understand Philippians 3.10. We're not getting under, anything. We're just getting a topical study on the importance of the resurrection. Maybe at some point it will, but he has now... He's, he's got less than 22 minutes to do this. He's got less than 22 minutes. And he's, we're not, we're, we're, we have nothing. I mean, I, I'm just sitting here. I've closed my Bible at this point because, I mean, this, this, there's nothing I'm going to get from Philippians 3.10. I, 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 he's still, I mean, and a lot of this he's quoting from Paul. Well, if Paul's the one writing all of this prior to writing to the church of Philippi, then what in the world could Paul need to know that he didn't already know? That, that's the question any good Bible student should ask. Remember the key to, I think the key to preaching, the key to teaching, and the key to being a Bible student is the ability to see what's obvious is first observation. What do we observe and observe in the text? Let's go back to Philippians. I'm going to open my Bible. That I, that's Paul, that I may know. This is Paul Speaking of what he's desiring, what his goal is, what he's wanting, what he's looking for, what he's pushing for, what however you want to describe it. Well, then we you can't you there we've got to know we've got to figure out what Paul already knew and then understand what he's asking here. Right, but let, I'm just gonna I know we're almost at an hour and I I'm gonna I don't want to stop. Okay, we are, we're gonna see. We may have no choice, or we just may give up on this sermon. We're going to go a little bit further and see how, if we can get to kind of an idea that, okay, this is it. There's nothing, nothing, or this is what we really needed right here. Well, we're going to see, we're going to go a little bit further. I'm going to try not to go as long as yesterday. I, I made a promise. I'm going to end up breaking the promise. I don't want to break the promise. Let's do this. All right. From the grave to fulfill the scripture, and he had to rise again from the grave to free the sinner. Paul says, this is the gospel by which you are saved. 
how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He had to die vicariously, shed his precious blood upon that cross to deal with the penalty of sin. But the book of Romans says in Romans 4.25 that he had to rise again for our justification. The hymn writer said it well, living he loved me, dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. And he sets people... And the book of Romans, he quoted Romans, and that's Paul, probably around 57 AD. So once again, probably written before, very close or, or a little before he wrote the church Philippi. So once again, you're quoting Paul, what Paul already knew, to try to somehow interpret a text about what Paul says he needs to know it or wants to know. You, you've got to see the, the problem here. You, you, I can't be the only one who sees the problem. I can't be. I can't be. I can't be. I'm hoping that I'm not going to get emails going, I didn't, I didn't understand what the issue was. I, I hope you see that there's an issue here. ...free by the power of his resurrection life. He sets us free from guilt... And he also sets us free one day from the grave. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He's the great emancipator. The Son of Man has come to set people free. And he does that through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then the third reason why he had to rise again from the grave was not only to fulfill the Scripture and to free the sinner, but also to fill the sanctuary in heaven. Hebrews chapter 8, verse number 1 says, Now of the things which we have spoken of, this is the sum. Here's the Apostle Paul, and he's summarizing everything that he said in the first seven chapters of the book of Hebrews. We have such an high priest, and that's Christ, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Then look what it says, a ministry or a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. You see, not only did the Son of God have to come into this world and live and die and be buried and rise again, but he had to ascend into heaven into the very holy place itself into the sanctuary of God and there in glory present the merits of his atoning blood before his Father's face in heaven. Hebrews 9, 7, but into the second, that's the sanctuary, the holiest of all, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of his people. Verse 11 says, but Christ, being common high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Where's the blood tonight? The blood of Christ. It's in heaven. And I believe it flows still in Emmanuel's veins. And I believe that before the very throne of grace tonight, before the throne of God, our Savior's there and he presents the merits and the value and the virtue and the victory of his atoning blood. And he does it in glory. 
Friends, the doctrine of the blood is a vital doctrine in Scripture as well. And we ought never to forget that these doctrines are so important to us. The resurrection and the blood. He went into the sanctuary to present his blood. Not only that, but to intercede for sinners. Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth. There's the resurrection again. To make intercession for them. Friend, did you know tonight, brother, sister in the Lord, that the Savior is praying for you tonight? The devil might accuse you. He might malign you. He might misrepresent you. He might shoot his fiery darts at you. But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he continues to present the merits of his sacrifice. And he continues to intercede before the throne of grace. And he also had to go into heaven so that all things could be put under his feet. Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 8. Speaking of the Father. Now here's the deity of Christ. Proof text. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Verse number 13. Again, speaking of the Father, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus Christ was not just a mere angel like Michael or Gabriel or or some of these other angels. He was the very angel of the Lord himself, the God-man Christ Jesus, King of kings and, and Lord of lords. And Hebrews 10, 13 says a little bit more about this whole thing from hence. don't know what to say. This this has nothing to do with Philippians 3.10. This has literally nothing to do with Philippians 3.10. Literally nothing. What this should have been is tonight we're going to take about 30 minutes and we are going to uh, talk about some important things in regards to the resurrection of Christ. And here is the first thing. The resurrection of Christ was essential. It would be a great devotional topical study. The problem is this is supposed to be a study of Philippians 3.10. We're in an hour. I'm, I'm going I'm to go. I'm, I want to at least see what the second point is, right? I got to at least see what the second point is because I think that's where it's going to transition. And then maybe we'll at least get some idea how he's understanding it for the, I mean, he can't forget the Apostle Paul because Philippians 3.10 was Paul speaking about himself, right? Can Paul be forgotten from the text? Can we? I, I, I don't know. Henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. And then he not only had to go into the sanctuary to present his blood and to intercede and to have all things put under his feet, but also to fill heaven with glory. He filled the sanctuary with glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him, listen, that filleth all in all. Heaven, the sanctuary, is filled with the glory of Christ. The necessity or the exigency of his resurrection. Then we move on to another vital point, the evidence for his resurrection. Now, there are many people in our world tonight that try to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some that like to say they're Christian people, and they like to say that the Bible contains the Word of God, but there may be problems with some of the supernatural things, will explain the resurrection away by saying that Christ did not die upon the cross. He merely swooned. <laughs> what? What am I? What? Can, help! Help! Someone send help! Help! Someone! Someone send help to to Moonlight Drive in Abilene, Texas. Please, someone send help! Please, please. What? He's fell into unconsciousness, a coma, if you like, and people thought that he was dead, and then he revived again, but he didn't come back from the dead. And then there are others who will say that it was all just a fraud. And the disciples came and they, they broke into the tomb and they got past that guard of soldiers and they rolled the stone away and they took the body and they took it away and they hid it someplace and nobody ever found it. And it was all just a fraud. And then there are others who will say that the disciples were just so overcome with grief and they really just couldn't face the fact that their Savior died, that they had these kind of visions, and they thought that they saw the Lord, but it was all just a vision, a dream. And then there are others who just say it's just a myth. All of these different theories that try and explain away the resurrection. But folks, tonight, the power of his resurrection, it's the best attested fact in all of history. You say tonight... Okay, now, let's just, once again, applying just basic rules of understanding... His, his argument is what Paul needed to know. I mean, look, even though he's not explicitly said it, since, he's suppo since supposedly this is a study of Philippians 3.10, what Paul needed to know was that the resurrection was essential. Well, that doesn't make any sense because Paul wrote the very letters prior to writing to the, to the church of Philippi that it was essential. Hey, Paul needed to know the evidence of the resurrection. Well, he's going to quote from Paul about the evidence of the resurrection. So Paul knew the evidence. Paul knew the essential nature. Paul knew that Christ had risen from the dead because he encountered him on the road to Damascus, right? He was taught by Christ in the desert. So clearly Paul knew the essential and the evidence of of the resurrection. So why are we talking about this and trying to understand Philippians 3.10 when it has nothing to do with Philippians 3.10? This is just a topical message on things we need to know about the resurrection. We need to know that it's essential and we need to know the evidences for it. Great, great study. Wonderful. Nothing he's saying is wrong. Well, why do you believe in the resurrection? Well, first of all, because of the Word. The Word of God tells us that Christ is risen again. Christ died for our sins. How do we know that? According to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again. How do we know that? Why do we believe that? Because it's according to the Scriptures. The Word. And then there's all of the wonders. Did you ever think tonight about the wonder 
of the empty tomb. Matthew chapter 27, the great wonder of the empty tomb. Matthew 27, verse number 59. We thought about this on Sunday night when Joseph had taken the body. He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. So there was a stone. And not only was there a stone, but there was also a seal. Verse number 66, it says concerning some of the Roman soldiers Pilate had sent them, it says, you have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made a sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Whenever I worked in engineering, we used to have this, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a little tube, just like a, a small tube of toothpaste, and it was filled with this pink type of wax, and it was, to, it was called tamper-proof wax or something like that. And whenever maybe a job was finished and all the little nuts and screws and bolts would be put on, these little beads of wax would be put against the thread and between the, the screw and the bolt against the thread. And if somebody came and they tampered with it, that wax would be broken. And you would know that if somebody had been footering with it when they shouldn't have been or it maybe come back and someone said it doesn't work and you could look at all of these little beads of wax and know that it had been tampered with or not. And that's what it means when it says they made the sepulcher sure. They rolled a stone over the door. They put ropes across it and they sealed them there with wax. So if that stone moved one inch, they would know all about it. And then there was not only the stone and the seal, but there was also the soldiers. They said, set a watch. Make the sepulcher sure. And they set a watch. Now that watch was a, a group of Roman soldiers. Somewhere between four and sixteen men guarding that tomb at any one time. Now, do you think a handful of disciples would have been able to get to that tomb and tamper with the stone and the seal and the soldiers not know anything about it and not be able to do anything about it? Because, friends, it was supernatural. The Scripture says in, uh, that there was a great earthquake in verse number 2 of chapter 28. And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it and his countenance was like lightning. And then we read in John's Gospel, chapter 20, that whenever those people came and they saw the tomb empty and they saw the angel sitting there, they saw the grave clothes in the tomb and somewhere else a little napkin that was round about his head that was folded up in a different part of the tomb by itself. Now, I'm sure if the disciples came and took the body of the Lord or anybody else, and there was a guard of Roman soldiers outside the door of the tomb, and somehow they'd been able to get in behind the stone without anybody seeing it, I'm sure they wouldn't have taken time to take all of the, the grave clothes off the Lord's body and then wrap them up and put them back exactly into the place and then take the, the napkin off his head and put that somewhere else. You see, there was no sign of struggle. There was no sign of panic. It was all supernatural. The Lord physically rose from the grave. And, and you know, we think of all of these wonders and we think of the Word. And then we think of the witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said, Who's he quoting? The Apostle Paul. So Paul knew all of this. So what is Paul wanting to know in regards to the power of the resurrection? It can't be that it was essential and it can't be about the evidence 
because Paul knew all of this. So this has literally nothing to do with Philippians 3.10, which is supposedly the text that this sermon is exegeting and expounding, but it's not. How can you study a text and not even even present anything meaningful and how to understand it? And everyone sits there and listens and says, well, oh, that was a good sermon. It, it's just meaningless. It's just, it, we're not, we're, what are we doing? He says, listen, he says he was seen of Cephas. And then he was seen of the 12. And then he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. And you read in the Gospels, he was seen by Mary Magdalene. He was seen by Mary, the mother of James. He was seen by Salome. He was seen by the two on the road to Emmaus. He was seen by the eleven in the upper room. Then he was seen by Peter. Then he was seen again by the, the ten whenever Thomas came and he dwelt with them as well. And, and you know, Thomas was the hardest con to, to convince of all that he'd risen from the grave, but Thomas seen him. And then he was seen by the disciples at the Sea of Galilee. He was seen by 500 brethren. He was seen at his ascension. And then he was seen by the biggest critic of all, the Apostle Paul or Saul of Christ wants to know the power of, or Paul wants to know the power of the resurrection. And he's saying that one of the ways we, um, that we, that I guess we know the power of the resurrection is know that it's essential and know the evidences of it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, he was seen of me also. So Paul saw the resurrected Christ. So, no, 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 we, 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 hang on. We, we got to try to figure this out. We got to try to figure this out. Now, hang on. We got to think this through. Wait, if Paul it was witnessed, seen, experienced the resurrected Christ, then you can't go to Philippians 3.10 and go, hey, guys, the, you've got to increase, you've got to learn to know Christ and you've got to know the power of his resurrection. And the way you know the power of his resurrection is you've got to study the essential nature of it and the evidences of it, then you can know the power of it. No, Paul saw the resurrected Christ, and here he is saying in Philippians 3, I want to know the power of the resurrection. No, this has nothing to do with what Paul wants. Paul clearly wants something more than he had ever experienced, and it's clearly what Paul experienced we've never going to experience. So then how do we understand this? Paul is wanting to experience, he wants to know Christ as Christ is fully known, that means when we see him and we're like him and we're, we're, we, we know him as he knows us, that's when we're in his presence. And then the, resurre the power of the resurrection here, where we know that is when we die and enter into his presence. I mean, he's literally, I don't know what he's doing here, but I mean, I, I, he can't hear himself and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul. He... He read Philippians 3.10. We haven't been to Philippians 3.10 in the entire sermon, other than at the very beginning to read all of the verses. And then we haven't been in Philippians 3.10 since. We're 27 minutes into the sermon. We just got a few minutes left. I know I've already over time that I wanted to go, but I got to finish this at this point because I don't want to have to come back to this. I, I just want to see what his last point is. And then if it's not anything that's going to help us, then we're just going to stop. And we're not even going to listen to it. But... um like, how do you not realize what you're doing? Paul here in Philippians 3.10 is that he wants to know something. You're telling me everything Paul already knew. Tarsus. 
You think these people are all liars or lunatics? And then there's the great works that testify to his resurrection. You think of the early church. And they've got no money, they've got no manpower, they've got no methods, they've got no materials, they've got no message that anybody would believe. They had a Messiah that everybody thought was a fraud. But yet whenever they went out on the day of Pentecost and they preached, the Bible says that Christ worked with them. The book of the Acts of the Apostles records the workings of Christ. First verse says, Luke says, The former treatise have I written, O Theophilus, speaking of the Gospel of Luke, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Indicating that in the book of Acts, I'm now writing about everything that Jesus Christ is continuing both to do and to teach. And we think of these unlearned and ignorant men performing miracles, giving sight to the blind, performing all these wonders. Then we think of the changed lives and we think of all the fulfilled prophecy and we see all this evidence for the resurrection. But our verse tonight, our text tonight, speaks about the energy of the resurrection because it speaks there that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Think about that little phrase. It speaks to us tonight of might. The word power is that familiar word, dunamai from which we get the word dynamic or dynamo or dynamite. And it took the very power of God to raise Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, Jesus from the tomb, was the crowning miracle that God ever performed. But why would we think it's strange? Why would we think it an impossibility if God is almighty and God is supernatural? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The, pe- the reason people deny and doubt the resurrection is just because of unbelief. They don't believe God is who he says he is in the word. And there's power, there's might, not only to perform the resurrection, but in his resurrection. It speaks of power over sin and over death and over the grave. And one day, friend, the power of God that rose Christ from the grave and the power of God that quickened your dead spirit will be the same power that will raise your body from the grave. It's mighty. It's miraculous. There can be no physical explanation for the resurrection. It was a miracle. The bodily resurrection. You know, so many of the cults today and so many of the false religions, they try to explain away the resurrection. You'll meet them in the doors sometimes. You'll meet them down the street and they'll talk the right kind of lingo and they'll talk about the resurrection. And we're thinking here maybe now about the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I was reading just tonight about some of the things that they have recorded in some of their books. Books like Let God Be True and another book called Reconciliation. And this is what they say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ They said it was a spiritual resurrection. After death, he became a quickening spirit. He took on many different material forms at different times. But here's what they say, and I quote, The man, Jesus, must remain dead forever if he is to be a substitute for Adam. He could not be raised up out of death as a man. The scriptures do not reveal what became of his body. Maybe it was dissolved into some type of gas. Maybe it is preserved somewhere in heaven as an exhibit to those people who will live during the millennium. 
but it was a spiritual resurrection. But friends, tonight, whenever Thomas came to the Lord, Jesus Christ says, Thomas, touch me, handle me, and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Friends, it was a glorious, miraculous, physical resurrection from the grave. It was mighty. It was miraculous. It was majestic. The resurrection of Christ was the commencement of his exaltation into glory. The Bible says that now he's exalted far above all principalities and powers. He's a We're just going to stop. I don't know literally what to say. I, I am just dumbfounded that there is no attempt in, I mean, this entire sermon that's supposed to be an exposition of Philippians 3.10. We've spent no time in Philippians 3.10 other than the initial reading. And everything that he's saying we need to know about the power of the resurrection are things that Paul would have already knew, even though this is Paul in Philippians 3.10 saying he wants to know. He does almost hint at it a little bit that we're, that we're truly like, you know, when we experience the resurrection, yeah, that's when we'll know the power of the, we will know him when we see him and we will know the power of the resurrection when we, in a sense, have been resurrected. That's Paul is longing for a knowledge beyond all the knowledge he had already obtained. So this cannot be a sermon. Philippians 3.10 cannot be turned around and go, guys, listen, listen to everyone in this church. Do you truly know him? You need to know him more. Do you know the power of his resurrection? You need to know it more. It can't be turned into that because the one thing he needs to know would already outdo all of us. Look, when it comes to knowing Christ, Paul would know, will always know him better than us, right? Because of the, of the situation he was in. So then if he didn't know him enough, then we're never going to know him enough. So there would be, you could preach this all day at people and challenge them. They'd be like, well, if Paul never got there, I'm never going to get there. So it would just seem like a meaningless, just, you would just be beating people up for no, with no, no hope. And if you're like, Hey, you need to know the power of the resurrection. I guess you just need to listen to a little sermon about, Hey, it's essential. There's evidences for it. And the power that was displayed in it or whatever, whatever his points are, I've already forgot his points. Okay. But um, I mean, what does that do? If Paul still didn't know it and Paul already knew all of those things. So if Paul already knew all of those things, then there would be no hope of me ever knowing it. So in other words, this is a self-defeating message. Yeah. So you say, what is the power of the resurrection? I think Paul wants to know the power of the resurrection and he's longing to know it in when, 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 in its most fullest way. And the only way to know, the only way to know him in the most fullest way, the only way to know the power of his resurrection, the only way to know the fellowship of his suffering, and the only way to be conformable to his death is when I cease to live on this earth and I am in the presence of Almighty God. 
then I know all of those things. Fellowship of suffering. Remember, we go with John Gill's concept that that means you are so connected with his suffering that you are the beneficiary of his suffering. Well, it's when I'm in heaven when I truly experience that, right? No more sin, no more pain, no more death. Christ suffered to defeat death and defeat sin. I'm not going to truly know that until I'm in heaven because guess what? On this earth, I'm still going to suffer. Okay, so so the power of resurrection, well, I'm there in heaven, so I've experienced that. Know him, well, I'm going to know him as he now knows me, all right? I'm going to be like him, conformable to his death. Well, the old me no longer exists, and now it's the new me in heaven without a sinful nature. All of that is accomplished there. That's the only way this works. And so therefore, what Paul is longing for is what we all long for, and we will all experience because we've been saved by Grace, not by works. All right. I don't know what the plan is next. Uh, we, 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 I really don't know what the, I don't know if we're, I think we're going to stop this series. We may, we may just grab a, a, some more random ones. I think we're going to give up on this series because clearly this is how he's going to approach every message. So what do I want you to learn from this? This is what I want you to take away. We have heard an example of preaching that is doctrinally sound, theologically sound, that everything said is correct, everything said was godly. So let's be, let's praise God for that. However, it was a sermon that literally substituted the text. The text that was supposed to be preached was ignored, and the sermon got in the way of the text because it didn't expound the text, explain the text, teach the text, or even deal with the wording of the text. In fact, what he's doing here is he's saying things that contradict the very text because the person who says he wants to know these things or the person he's quoting who clearly already knew these things. So it makes absolutely no sense. This is what is a topical method, a topical, I keep wanting to say topical method because I keep thinking about the topical method for the Bible study exercise. This is a topical message trying to disguise itself as a verse-by-verse exegetical message. Now, you've got to learn to hear that in preaching. doesn't mean that the sermon doesn't give you good things. Everything you're saying here is good. Just the problem is you didn't learn anything about Philippians 3.10. Now, if you remove this, he should, I don't even know why he even quoted Philippians 3.10. He should have said, tonight, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Christ, and here are the things I want you to know tonight when you leave about the resurrection of Christ, that it was essential the evidences of it, and the power displayed by it, or whatever his last thing was, right? They, and then and then everyone can be like, okay, that was, oh, thank you. That was a good reminder of some basic facts about the resurrection. That was good, basic, fundamental, praise God. And it would be, a, it would be an excellent sermon. It would be an amazing sermon. It would be, I, so I don't want you to think I'm criticizing what everything he was said was 100% right. I agree with all of it. I could take notes on that, repackage it, and teach it as a devotional study on the resurrection, and it'd be great, but not when it comes to, it's supposed to be an exposition of Philippians 3.10. I mean, literally, it's in a series on Philippians 3.10. That's the most bizarre thing. When you look up the sermon and you, you see the first sermon, you click, it says series, Philippians 3.10. You click on it, it gives you four sermons. But none of these sermons are about Philippians 3.10. And you know what that proves? He didn't know what to do with Philippians 3.10. So he decided to skip Philippians 3.10, grab individual phrases, rip them from their context, and turn, turn, turn them into individual topical messages, claiming that it's about Philippians 3.10. 
That, that's the, and you've got to learn how to detect that only because not that you can be critical and you can tell everyone that sermon was bad. No, 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 no. So that you know, okay, I, I learned some stuff tonight or today or whenever you listen to a sermon like that, but I need to go home and actually study the text because we did not actually study the text. Now, what's disheartening is when a sermon like that is over and the people of the congregation go, man, that was such a good sermon on Philippians 3.10. And you just, you, you, well, that's where you just have to learn sometimes to bite your tongue because it's not your place. But you want to say, we didn't study Philippians 3.10. We didn't, st-, but it's not your place because that just causes division and problems. But yeah, this concludes our, I, I apologize. This is where I'm just, I'm sorry, but that's, I guess I'm I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry because I guess you kind of you need to see how a lot of preaching happens. You you need to see that a lot of preaching actually gets in the way of the text. You need to realize that. That a lot of times you have been blinded from ever seeing the text because you 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 were satisfied with the sermon. The, the goal of the sermon is to get you to the text. If the sermon keeps you from the text, you should not be satisfied. That doesn't mean you should cause trouble and start gossiping and complaining. Just means you need to realize, man, I need to get to the text and find a way. So uh, I don't think we're going to do any more reviews of this series because this is not helpful. So we may look for some, we'll do another random search and see what else we can find. Because this one is, I, all we're, every episode is going to be the same thing and it's not going to be beneficial. So, all right. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Our theory, our thesis about Philippians 3.10 still stands. Because so far, we've not been presented anything challenging our point of view. In fact, so far, we haven't even been presented a counter view. So we're going to have to find sermons that will at least present a counter view. Yes? So we're going to keep, we'll keep reviewing sermons. I don't care if this series takes the rest of 2022. At some point, we're going to go, there, there we go. We've got a counter view. We, we've got someone that challenges our perspective. And once we hear that, then we'll, we'll be able to see if it worked. It makes more sense. All right. Newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a wonderful Saturday evening. Thanks for listening. Sorry it went so long, but I had to finish this because there was no way I was coming back just to get say the same thing that I've already said. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless.